Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Denise Fournier, a psychotherapist, coach, facilitator, and adjunct professor at Nova Southeastern University. Over the last 15 years, she's worked in numerous mental health settings, guiding several hundred people on their own unique growth journeys. Currently, Dr. Fournier owns and operates a private therapy practice, Evergreen Therapy, in Miami, Florida. In addition to her work with clients, she also writes for Psychology Today and produces e-courses in the areas of mindfulness and mental health. Her work, as well as her writing, centers on Eastern traditions of Zen Buddhism and Taoism, which encouraged a balanced, open, and accepting approach to life. Denise, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'm really psyched. We're going to be talking today about calling out irrational beliefs and about cognitive biases and work that you do and you write about in your practice. So I'm really excited to hear your take on this issue. I'm excited too. It's one of my favorite topics as well. Yeah. So to begin with, uh, start by telling us a little bit about yourself as a professional and an individual and what brought you into this field of interest around uh, cognitive therapy. Well, presently, I'm a therapist in private practice, and I have been in private practice for several years. But prior to that, I worked in drug treatment. I worked uh, for the foster care system. I've worked in a variety of mental health settings uh, in my community um, and have been a therapist since around 2007, but have been in the field of psychology in some form or fashion since around 2002, starting as a student and then a researcher. And so I've been in this world for a really long time. I kind of have started to think of myself as a one trick pony mm -hmm. uh, because it's you know what I've done for so long. And then also I'm so passionate about it that I find when I'm not working, I'm you know, wanting to read or listen to, you know, any sort of material that's going to feed this passion and inform my work with folks, you know, as a therapist. Um, in addition to practicing as a therapist, I do some teaching, some adjunct teaching for uh, graduate level students. And of course, I do some writing as well for Psychology Today and for some other publications here and there. So it's really what I eat, sleep and breathe. And it has been for a really long time. And I think, you know, my story is not that unconventional in terms of how I, I came to become a mental health professional. It really started with my own personal set of interests around what makes human beings tick and wanting to understand myself a bit more deeply, wanting to understand my world more deeply. I kind of just found my way to psychology classes. And then once I got immersed in learning about this stuff. I couldn't get enough of it. So I just kept going and kept going. And as I learned new things that excited me or interested me, I would kind of just pursue those. And sometimes that would lead me to a new degree or sometimes that would lead me to a new research interest. And so I've just kind of followed that passion and that interest uh, as a person. And that has informed my work as a professional. And I've just kept that going over the years. Yeah, I can tell you have a real passion for the field. And I know you have an interest in some of the Eastern traditions of Zen Buddhism and mindfulness, and we probably won't be talking as much about those today. But just real briefly, where does those interests come from for you? You know, that came about 
through my own therapy, actually. So when I was an undergrad, I saw my first therapist. I was probably 18 years old and I was suffering from panic attacks and pretty severe anxiety that were really inhibiting my ability to perform the way I wanted to in college and even to feel confident enough to live away from home. And so I went to the student counseling center and I was met with this fabulous therapist who not only helped me as a therapist, but also taught me about Buddhism. She was interweaving back then, amazingly interweaving Buddhism into her work as a therapist. And it was pretty front and center in our conversations. And so of course, you know, I kind of had to get curious about what is this stuff because this was what she led with. And I found that it really served our work really well to incorporate these ideas about present moment awareness and about developing a different relationship with my mind. And so because of her influence, I continued to pursue Buddhism as a scholar, you know, more so as a philosophy um, than as a religion, but I continued to pursue that. And so that sort of ran parallel all throughout the years that I was evolving as a clinician. I was also evolving my own uh, practice and my own interest in Buddhism and just continued to seek out mentors over the years who would uh, help me to interweave those things in my work, which is you know, what I've continued to do over the years. Right. Well, there's certainly a lot of valuable overlap with those traditions and the work we do as therapists. So that's awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about these cognitive issues. So cognitive biases and irrational beliefs. What are these and why are they important for us in understanding the clinical work that we do? Well, you know, I like to think about these biases, these beliefs, these judgments as sort of the background that is informing everything about how we understand the world and how we position ourselves in the world. It informs how we think, it informs how we feel, it informs how we act, and it really influences our lives a great deal even though we kind of have to work at becoming aware that they're there. So they're always there. They're always in the background, but we may not always recognize that they are in the background. And so that's one of the reasons why I find this area of our, of our field and our work so fascinating because it's an area that for many people remains relatively kind of out of awareness. And when we support people, I mean, as therapists, we support people in bringing the unconscious into the conscious so that it can be worked with. And this is one area that when when we do this, it's transformational. And on a personal level, when any of us can really identify what our cognitive biases are or what our core beliefs are, we have so much rich material to be able to work with to create change in our lives. Just that one step of bringing into focus those biases and beliefs can make all the difference in the world and give us material that we can be immersed in and working with about ourselves for life. I think that makes a lot of sense. And in reading some of your blog writings, you talk a bit about the brain, how the brain judges, the brain makes assumptions, the colors, the things that we look at. How and why does this happen, Denise? Like, why does our brains do all these funky manipulations of the things that we're experiencing in our world around us? You know, you saying funky manipulations, I think is, is so lovely because interestingly, we engage in these kinds of judgments and our brain works in this way 
to simplify, you know, and, and so what ends up happening is it does wind up being a whole new set of funky manipulations, but the intention behind this is to really organize our world. We live in an extraordinarily complex world and without this sort of cognitive organizing that our brain is doing, it's just pure groundlessness, right? I mean, it's sort of hard to position mm. ourselves inside of this world. Who am I? What is this place? Who are these people? How, how do I go about my life? And so the primary purpose of these, you know, these judgments, these biases, these beliefs is to give order to our lives, right? To help us to orient ourselves in the world, to help us to understand our world a bit better, to help us to understand ourselves a bit better, and ultimately to help us survive, right? So a lot of these things, when we talk about psychology, we can't ignore the fact that as human organisms, it's a survival game. And so a lot of this stuff is really aimed at helping us to stay safe, i.e. to survive. And so these biases and beliefs are really part of how we understand our world and therefore position ourselves in the world to then navigate the world and hopefully do that safely and hopefully survive. And so these beliefs start getting formed long before we're conscious that, you know, that they're there and long before we really have the equipment to cognate as we, you know, eventually do as adults. So they're, they're largely unconscious at first. And then over time we start sort of adding to them and cataloging them. And, and that's how we start developing biases because we have these templates that we're working off of, and we just continue to find evidence to prove them right, which helps us to organize our world in a way, again, that helps to keep it manageable and therefore hopefully safe for us. So the judgments, the assumptions, the way their beliefs color, the way we look at things, they form a there's a functional purpose for them and they allow us to make sense of the world around us is what I hear you saying. And like I'm imagining, like you see enough snarling, salivating dogs that are snarling at you. You want to quickly be able to figure out dangerous, try to stay away from that dog. Don't let it come and bite you. So it does serve a function, but what I'm gathering is that there are times in which the way that we develop these beliefs and the way that they affect our, our thinking and approach to the world are not so functional for us. And that's where we get into trouble. And what can you say about that? Let's, let's start with the base, base of that. So certainly there are plenty of things that we believe, any one of us believes that are adaptive and, and functional and purpose-driven and really serve us well. Where mental health professionals get really interested and where people I think would do well to get really interested is to look at the maladaptive beliefs, the ones that don't necessarily serve too well. And like you said, I think it's a lovely point that almost all beliefs at some point served some adaptive function. The idea is that while they might have at one point kept us safe, some of these beliefs, if we continue to hold them, are going to really constrict our lives or the possibilities for our lives. So that's where in therapy, for example, we get really interested at looking at, okay, what are the beliefs that might be limiting you? What are the beliefs that might not necessarily be serving you anymore? And in my practice, I like to always honor the original to the extent that we can kind of suss that out, what was the original adaptive purpose of this belief, right? We come by our beliefs pretty honestly. We come by our beliefs as a function of our experience in the world, right? And so often we're not choosing them. We're just kind of coming to them 
on the basis of what we're encountering in our lives. And so I like to work with people on identifying what those purposes might have been that those original beliefs served and really honoring in a very active way, you know, thank you. Thank you for keeping me safe. Thank you for helping me to navigate difficult circumstances. Thank you for helping me to navigate my relationships. I no longer need you, right? And and so then that's when we start to do the cognitive restructuring to start to actively and consciously reshape those beliefs for more adaptive purposes here and now. Yeah. So what are some examples of that? Just like some real basic ones. I'm assuming probably a lot of them originate in childhood coming from attachment figures and from relationships. Like what would be some examples where this is a belief that had an adaptive purpose at one time and then turned into a maladaptive belief system that doesn't work as an adult? There are actually quite a few very common ones that I encounter in my work. And I think many of us therapists encounter in our work that will probably sound familiar to, you know, to any listeners here. I am unlovable. I Hmm. am unworthy. People can't be trusted. The world is not a safe place. Things don't go my way, right? I'm unlucky. I'm bad. When we start thinking about these sort of self-limiting core beliefs, they sort of tend to fall in the category of beliefs about ourselves, beliefs about others, beliefs about the world. You know, so these are the ones that we tend to see really commonly. Um, And it's probably kind of weird now that we're talking about them being adaptive, right? So anybody who's never really thought about this stuff before might be thinking, well, how could that ever be helpful, you know, to think I'm unlovable Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, I'm unworthy. But in fact, you know, when you think about how, defenseless and powerless we are as children, you know, we don't really have any agency and we don't have access, direct access to resources to help us to navigate the world. We're really dependent on other people. We're dependent on our attachment figures, our caregivers, our environment to provide for us what we need. And if those needs aren't being met or they're not being met predictably, well, we're in a predicament, you know, where there's not much we can do for that. Um, There's not much that we, you know, can do beyond just trying to negotiate that with the intermediaries, you know, with our parents, our caregivers. And so if those caregivers are not providing us, let's say, love or not providing approval or not providing attention, well, we can't very well reject them and say, well, you're no good. You know, you're not a good parent. I have this need and you're not providing it for me. And so I'd like another parent, please. You know, we, we don't have mm-hmm. that luxury and we need to continue to depend on these people. You know, our very survival relies on us doing that. And so as a very sort of wise and adaptive survival strategy, we form these beliefs. Well, okay, the problem must be me. I must be unlovable. It must be that I'm unworthy. It must be that just the whole world is unsafe. This must just be a global thing. Because if I assume those things, and of course, this is not conscious, you know, these very early formulations are not conscious. They're very survival based. They're sort of primal, if you will. If I assume that I'm the problem, well, at least I am the one thing I can control. I can't control the world. I can't control my caregivers. I can't control my circumstances, but I can control me. And so then I can hustle, right? And this is where, you know, people-pleasing behaviors might be born out of, right? So Mm -hmm. I can hustle for worthiness. I can position myself to try to get people's approval. I can overachieve, you know, I can develop all of these adaptations to get my needs met. So this is kind of how they originally get formed and how they are originally pretty purposeful and wise. Yeah. You talk about something called the confirmation bias. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that. 
I see you smiling as you ask that, that question since we can see each other. And I, I love <laughs> that because I think for us in this field, confirmation bias is just, it's fun. You know, yeah. once we kind of recognize that it's there, it's, it's pretty remarkable. So confirmation bias is essentially this psychological tendency that we have to take in information that confirms what we already believe and to implicitly reject any information that runs against our belief. So any mm -hmm. contradictory information to what we already believe, we tend to reject it and very often not even see it. And so what happens is, you know, if we're walking around, I use an example in, in one of my blog posts about this, you know, if you believe that people are rude and unkind, you're likely to go through the world and see rude and unkind people. Are there rude and unkind people in the world? Well, sure. There are also wonderful, helpful, loving, kind, compassionate people in the world as well. But what confirmation bias will tend to do is obscure those examples to the point that we don't tend to let those in and really highlight those examples that reinforce and confirm what we already believe. And this is about survival also, right? It's a game of being right about what you're right about is what survival, you know, tends to kind of operate off of is that principle of what is familiar is likely to be safe. What's unfamiliar could be dangerous. That's the sort of rudimentary equation there. And so it is helpful under circumstances like those where what's potentially, where what's unfamiliar is potentially unsafe. It's helpful to just reject all of that. But of course, as you can imagine, it, can be pretty uh, unhelpful and have some pretty detrimental consequences to continue reinforcing a belief that may not and likely is not 100% true. So if I understand correctly, we have these maladaptive beliefs. I'm unlovable. Let's just call that one. And I have a confirmation bias that shows me examples of how I'm unlovable. So I believe I'm unlovable. I go out on a date the date doesn't go well for whatever reason, or my perception of it is it doesn't go well, right? But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but I come away from that saying, well, of course it didn't go well because I'm unlovable and this person would never love me because I'm unlovable. So this is another example of why I'm unlovable because the date didn't go well. Would that be kind of like what you're talking about? That's exactly it. The belief is already there. It's sort of, I like to think of beliefs as filters, mm -hmm. right? So the belief is already there. So there's a preset filter for how this date is going to certainly be interpreted and maybe even how you're going to experience the date or show up on the date, et cetera. But concluding if the date didn't go well, that, okay, it must not have gone well because I'm unlovable is sort of exactly what confirmation bias would set a person up to do because the filter is there for unlovability. Right. And what you said is really interesting too, because maybe from the other person's perspective, the date didn't go so badly, but if you have that filter, you're automatically seeing the date went bad and it went bad because I'm unlovable. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, there are so many implications to this because you're going into the date, you know, if this is a core belief that you hold, you're going into the date with this belief. So by just going on a date, you're taking an extraordinary risk, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's likely to be anxiety. There might be an inhibition, right? There might be a lot of influence on how you behave or how you speak or how you engage with the other person. So there's so much that's happening that's being influenced and informed by this belief. And most especially the conclusions that you come to and you're absolutely right. The other person could be 
totally interested and you might miss it, you know, which is something I see often with clients, which is why, you know, I like to work with people at pointing out exceptions, which is, I think the important work around deconstructing some of these beliefs and biases, and certainly this confirmation biases. Well, let's look at some exceptions. Let's look at some points of evidence. We always want to work with evidence when we're talking about beliefs that maybe the state wasn't a failure and that maybe what happened here isn't proof, you know, that you're unlovable. And we start to kind of explore that a little bit to see if we can flesh out, well, what really happened Mm -hmm. rather than only passing the experience through that filter of unlovable belief. So trying to find evidence to support whether or not the belief is true or not and what happened to support the belief. That's a big part of cognitive therapy, obviously. What are ways in which we should do that to try to find evidence? What I like to do with people is in the CBT tradition is kind of, you know, drill down a bit to the beliefs, but also look at, you know, what are the kinds of thoughts that you have when you are being, uh, when you're under the influence, as I like to say, of that belief, you know, what kinds of things do you think? What kind of things do you feel? What kind of things do you do when you're under the influence of that belief? So once we kind of identify, all right, this is a belief that's operating here. This is influencing you. Well, now let's look at it in terms of your thoughts, your emotions, your actions. And as we start to look at those, then we have a lot of of material to work with to then say, all right, are there other possibilities to make sense of what's happening here? Are there other possibilities to account for your experience? Are there other possibilities to account for why this person responded in this way? Are there other possibilities available, you know, to consider why when you said this, perhaps this other thing happened instead of the conclusion being, well, you know, I said this to him and, you know, he didn't really respond to it. And so that must mean I'm unlovable. Well, why else might he not have responded? And question I often ask is, can you be 100% sure beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is what's happening here? And most people will say no. You know, mm-hmm. um, do you have hardcore solid proof and evidence is another question I'll ask tangible, hardcore, incontestable evidence that this is true, that you are unlovable, that this date was a failure and that you are unlovable. Most mm-hmm. people can't provide that sort of evidence. So, okay. So we can't be 100% sure that that's what's happening. All right. And we have all this material to look at. Let's see what other kinds of ways we can make sense of this uh, with all of this material at our disposal. Uh, And so then it's a really sort of rich investigative experience to go through this and start to create detachment from this belief that, you know, we might be holding really true to. So on the one hand, you have on the more surface level, We'll use the date example because we've been talking about that. Is it actually true? Do I have the data to support that he isn't interested in me? He was looking at his phone at the dinner table. He had to get up twice to go do something. These are examples that he's not interested in me. Well, there may be some evidence there that opposes that. He he was looking at me when we were talking. He laughed several times during the conversation. He ordered another drink. Yeah, he he could have left after the first one. So on the surface, we have those things. But even beneath that, we have the idea that, okay, this person may or may not be interested in me, but is that a validation in and of itself that I'm unlovable? Because I went on a date a month ago 
And that went really, really well. And that person moved to Brazil. So they're gone now. So we couldn't keep dating. But obviously not everything goes badly. And, and besides the dates, you know, I, I have family that love me. I have friends who have been my friends for 15 years. Obviously, if I was unlovable, those things wouldn't be there. So yeah. that's sort of taking a look at the totality of it, I think. kind of what Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I like the way that you sort of framed that explanation, because it's not about painting the world with sort of rose tint. It's not about saying, okay, we're going to reject this unlovable belief. And then we're just only going to see how lovable I am. And we're only going to look at the good things. Sometimes dates don't work out. Sometimes relationships don't work out. Sometimes people aren't going to respond very favorably to you or aren't going to respond very well to you. And that might be objectively what's happening, right? It's not to say you're misinterpreting everything. But like you said, those things do not have to equate to I'm unlovable. So what we're really looking at is just kind of shaking free that, you know, attachment to the belief and the conclusion of unlovability and looking at number one, the evidence of times when you have been shown that you are lovable, all the times that you are shown that in your life. And number two, looking at how perhaps unfavorable responses or things not working out don't necessarily have to lead to that conclusion. Sure. Because if you conclude that, then you're going to go back into your shell and you're not going to try again, right? If you tell yourself, well, this one didn't go so well, that's okay. Maybe this wasn't the love connection here, but if I'm a lovable person, then it's just a matter of connecting with the right person for me. And then things might go differently. Yeah. yeah. And you, you talk about another one. How does it help me to continue believing this? That's another thing that you write about asking your clients when you're going through this cognitive uh, reframing process. Yeah. You know, beliefs are really good at keeping us safe, but they often aren't really these kinds of beliefs, these self-limiting beliefs. I'm unlovable. You know, I'm unworthy. They're really good at keeping us safe, but they're not really good at helping us to live. And so mm -hmm. I want people to kind of get to that on their own. And so I'll ask questions like this, you know, of course uh, I'm a bit biased. I, I hope and expect that they will kind of get to that place. I'm also very open to where they will get to, but I invite people to sort of explore that and investigate that. So I will have them ask themselves questions, you know, how is it serving me? You know, what is the benefit to me continuing to hold on to this belief? And often when people answer that question, it will be some version of it keeps me safe. It helps me mm -hmm. mitigate risk. It, it keeps me from having to be vulnerable, you know, which is another translation of it keeps me safe, you know? So it really kind of does reveal itself to be the, the primary purpose that this is serving. Now it's anybody's prerogative to live life in a safe way. You know, there's nothing wrong with safety. You know, right. I mean, there's, there's quite a, a number of advantages to trying to remain safe, but we can't necessarily thrive and live a full actualized existence. We can't live a life that is rich in meaning. Uh, we can't have fruitful, juicy relationships with other people if we're always playing it safe, because to live that kind of life requires some degree of exposure and certainly a great deal of vulnerability, which is inherently risky, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and presumably the patients who are coming to see you for therapy are there because these things aren't working so well for them and they want to change. And so that's the rub and the resistance that you're butting up against as a therapist. And they're really wanting you to convince them, I think, yeah, I, I am lovable and I am worthy. I'm just scared of taking the risks. 
Yeah. I always think that every client in therapy is giving me a double message. You know, it's, I want things to change, but I don't want anything to be different, you know, or I want things to be different, but I don't want to change. You know, it's sort of this paradoxical message. We want change. We don't necessarily want to take the risks that are involved in change, which is why, you know, with CBT, it's so great that we have, like I said, so many different points of reference and we have so many bits of information that we can work with, not just beliefs, but thoughts, emotions, and actions, because we can hold any one of those up as an opportunity for change. And it's a micro change, right? So we don't have to do a dramatic overhaul of, of life. And that's what I, you know, always remind the people I'm working with. We don't have to do a complete transformation of you and everything about you for things to feel different. If we made this slight adjustment over here and how we think about this, or perhaps the next time you go on a date, what if you tried this, you know, and it's a micro adjustment. It's something that yeah, it might feel a little stretchy. It might feel a little vulnerable, but it's not going to throw you into complete, you know, catastrophe and groundlessness. And as you start making those micro adjustments, big changes start to happen. You know, one thing that you were talking about, Denise, that reminded me of as a therapist, and I'm sure that you have probably experienced this a million times in your practice, but it's kind of what you were talking about, about being optimistic and the belief that I'm really helping people take risks and be vulnerable. And I really believe that it's going to help them be able to combat their maladaptive beliefs and their thinking patterns by having some successes and seeing how things go better and differently and then sending them out with these homework assignments and trying things and just white knuckling like, oh, please go the way that I hope it goes. <laughs> I would really, really love to see you have a good experience here so it can be evidence to show you that maybe your maladaptive thinking is not accurate. But of course, that doesn't always happen that way, right? Sometimes things go exactly the way the patient fears they're going to go. And what do you do in a situation like that where it sort of backfires? You know, I think that's where my my Buddhist leanings really come in come in handy, you know, and the principle of, of equanimity of just sort of receiving what reveals itself, you know, as it reveals itself and working with that, you know, and, and trying to approach my work and trying to approach, you know, clients homework and clients change process with as much non-attachment um, as I try to approach the rest of my life. Not easy, of course, but you know, if I'm sort of observing myself in the, in the process, okay, am I getting attached to outcome or am I open to process? Yeah. Am I ready to receive whatever the client brings back with real curiosity? Because if I can do that, then my hope is that my client can do that, you know, and, and there's no failure then, right? And there's no need to be disappointed. We just, okay, we have new information. So that happened. Well, how was that? You know, so what mm-hmm. do you experience and what showed up? And, and so now we've got new stuff, you know, to work with and we're not sort of dashed across the, you know, the rocks, not, not able to move forward because it didn't go the way that we'd hoped. And so I try to model that for my clients, that non-attachment to outcome, that curiosity, that equanimity, uh, as much as I, I can in the process. And it's, it's an authentic stance also, because I find that when clients do go out and try this stuff, whatever they bring back, you know, sometimes it's 
the breakthroughs happen when people go out and things went worse than how they thought they would go, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes breakthrough happen, breakthroughs happen when people get upset with me because of what I invited them to do, you know, and gosh, you know, you, you put me out here in this vulnerable situation and, and they might assert themselves with me in a way that's just fabulous. And, and that reveals something about themselves that they didn't know was there. And so I find that there's always something to work with in therapy. And I think as therapists, if we can be self-aware and notice how we're positioning ourselves in the process, then, you know, we sort of never run out of, of material and never run out of opportunities. Sure. So it's sort of grist for the mill and being non-attached to the outcome and using that all as additional evidence and data to figure out, you know, what's working and what's not working and why. And um, I really like that approach. You talk about also, who would I be if I no longer held on to this belief? So what do you mean by that? We're helping people change. They're working on changing these maladaptive beliefs. They have some success with that, but then they start thinking like, well, what does this mean to me if I let this go? Yeah. I mean, that is always going to be the wall that we, that we sort of bump up against is what happens as I let this go. And that's the fear, right? And that's, that's the hesitation to expose ourselves um, to the unknown. And of course, this is what all of this is rooted in, as we've been talking about, is the survival, this protection, this way of remaining safe. So that's the first place that people tend to automatically go to because it's scary to let this stuff go, right? So if I let go of this idea, well, then I might be, I don't know, if I let go of the idea that I'm unlovable and I just like put myself out there, well, I I might just be getting rejected left and right. And like, that's going to hurt really bad. And that's going to make me feel really bad. Or, you know, I might have negative experiences that hurt me worse. And so the fear is usually the first thing that shows up for people when they consider the possibility of releasing some of these beliefs. So as a thought exercise, I invite people to think about who would you be? Because as soon as you start thinking in terms of who would I be, you're thinking in expansive terms, you're thinking in possibility terms. And so now, you know, we think about sort of the idea of, of, I need to remain safe or, you know, what fear does to us, it's collapse. You know, we tend to kind of constrict and collapse inward. We try to sort of take up as little space as possible. But when we start thinking, who would I be or who could I be? Now, suddenly we're in sort of expansion territory. Now we're in possibility territory. And so I, I like to ask questions like that because it invites people to consider other possibilities and it invites them for a moment to kind of put fear on a shelf and look toward a future where things might happen and where they might be able to act in ways and embody ways of being uh, that they haven't before. And so it's a way of sort of shifting into possibility land, if you will, um, from fear to hopefulness or curiosity. Yeah, I could see where there could also be some fear around the unknown if I do make these changes. So like, let's say for example, somebody has a maladaptive belief that they're inadequate and because they're inadequate, they can't possibly hope to advance in their career. So they don't take risks and they don't, they don't advance in their career. And then they're working with Dr. Fournier Mm -hmm. and they're starting to believe that maybe that idea or thought that I'm inadequate is not actually accurate. And then they start imagining a bigger world where they can venture out and try some things and take some risks. But guess what? If they do that, they might have to really renegotiate their relationship because their partner doesn't like the idea of moving to another city or going to another place. Or if I'm going to take this 
promotion that's somewhere across the world, I'll have to leave my family. And how would they feel if I left them? Like I've developed these patterns of living that work for the belief system that I have. And that keeps me trapped in them. Do you see that? I do. Absolutely. And I I think it's such a rich question because this is absolutely how it goes, right? Everything affects everything. And like you said, our beliefs are not just these things that exist in this little vacuum, you know, in this compartment of our brains, our beliefs influence everything about our lives. They shape everything about our lives. They organize our lives. So as you start to tweak one thing, yeah, you're going to start creating ripples of change. And there are implications for that to be sure. And that does, that does come up a lot. And, you know, I think there's no one specific way to, to work with that. I think it's always how to intervene and how to respond to those kinds of things are always going to sort of emerge as a function of that individual's process. And there are a lot of entry points, you know, as a therapist for where you can go with that. Um, One is, well, if someone were to propose that as, well, what if I do this? And what if I do this? Well, then I might notice, well, there's a lot of what if ing, you know, and, and how good after we've been doing all this work about pointing out your beliefs, maybe not being a hundred percent right. After we've noticed how many times your brain has been wrong, do we want to bank everything on your brain being right about all these what ifs coming mm-hmm. to pass? Can you know for sure that everything that you're telling me is going to happen if you start putting yourself out there, you know, to get different jobs and to advance in your career, that everything that you just told me in this sort of like catastrophic way of then I'm going to have to move here and then my wife's not going to like it and then this is going to happen, you know, can you be sure that that's how things are going to go? Um, most of us aren't very good fortune tellers. So what risk would you be taking if we gave it a try? Any Anyway, you know, if you gave it a try anyway, what risk would you be taking? So I might go that direction, you know, if it's sort of a hypothetical, you know, someone's kind of presenting their fears, because again, it's fear and anxiety, you know, showing itself once again, there certainly are going to be implications, you know, when you start changing, you start creating, as I said, ripples of change that are going to affect you, and they're going to affect the people in your life. And I think one thing that can come out of any form of therapy, hopefully, is more confidence in meeting with the circumstances of one's life. You know, so if we're doing this work to help people not be so influenced by fear and be more curious and be more, let's say, open-hearted or be more daring in their lives, then that's certainly going to influence them to hopefully be more confident in general in all areas of their life, this included. So as things come up, helping people to feel they can rest in a sense of confidence that whatever it is, whatever I met with, I'll respond to it as it shows up and I'll, I'll navigate it and and figure it out, you know, through conversation, through consideration, through exploration, and that's living, right. And that's very different from constricting and limiting and, you know, not taking risks. You talked earlier about this sort of unconsciousness that we have about the thoughts and the beliefs that we have a lot of the time they come from childhood or experiences we have, we develop them, they affect the way that we interact with the world, we perceive things, but we're not always consciously aware of them. I know part of what therapy is, is to help people become more consciously aware of them. But just as a general thing, how do people recognize this idea of their own self-talk, their automatic thinking, whatever you want to call it, and understand that it's going on back there and how it's affecting them? 
Well, I'm biased in my response. So I'm going to call that out right away. But meditation is a fantastic way Mm. to do this. Um, Getting quiet, right? It doesn't have to be even a formal meditation practice that can get a person there, but simply being quiet and noticing. We move so quickly, even, you know, I've been in meditation practice for many years and I'll find myself if I'm certainly, if I'm out of my practice and I don't practice in a day, I could go an entire day and not sort of be with myself for more than a couple of minutes. I might have a podcast in my ears while I'm pouring my coffee and making breakfast. And then Mm -hmm. I go straight into my sessions. And then from there I go and I talk to my husband and then we'll turn the TV on and an entire day will have passed where I was never alone with myself. Thankfully I have a reference point. I have an anchor in my meditation practice. I have an anchor in my contemplative practices, you know, that I've had and relied on over the years where I can get still and I can get quiet. Uh, and so that, that helps a lot because I, I can always pivot, but for so many of us, we don't have that reference point. We don't have that anchor. And so we're moving through the world, very externally focused. We're moving through the world in a a default kind of way, sort of automatically, um, you know, sort of reacting to what life is throwing at us and not necessarily going inward, going inside, being with ourselves. And so for most people, if they slow down and they get quiet, even for a few minutes, they're going to start to notice that there's a little voice in there, that there's chitter chatter in there, that there's stuff that's happening there. And not everybody has a voice, so to speak. Not everybody thinks in this sort of narrative form, but people will notice if they're still enough, if they're quiet enough, if they're curious enough that something is going on there. Mm -hmm. And that then becomes the entry point for discovery of the self, if you will, discovery of what's sort of behind the scenes. Yeah. So there has to be some intentionality, first of all, to be quiet and pay attention. That makes perfect sense. And meditation is a way to do that. And meditation can take many different forms. Of course, it's not necessarily hitting a Tibetan singing bowl and emptying your mind, right? There's ways to just be (laughs) quiet and pay attention to your thinking. And then what? So somebody starts paying attention to their thinking and they notice there's this chitter chatter and thoughts are going on. How do they figure out what's the noise and what's the part that they actually need to pay attention to that's affecting them with these maladaptive beliefs? That's a really a great question. I think to your point, there has to be a certain degree of intentionality. And I think for each person, it's going to look different. Um, not everybody necessarily wants to change themselves, right? You know, in, in therapy, we, we talk about there being customers for change. And then there are visitors, you know, there are people who come to you because they're customers, they're ready, they want to do the work. And then there are people who are visitors, it's like, ah, you know, I don't really love the way things are going, but I'm not necessarily ready to do anything about it, which is which is okay. You know, uh, we're all in different places at different times in our journey, if you will, I think the intention really matters. Well, okay. So what do you want to learn about yourself? What do you want to do with what you learn about yourself? It is perfectly okay. And I tell people all the time, it is perfectly okay to not jump on the self-improvement train. You don't have to do self-improvement. You don't have to work on yourself. You don't have to develop yourself. You are, you know, at choice for how you want to navigate your world and how you want to navigate your life. And if that is not one of the choices that you want to make, well, that's your prerogative. And you can probably live a perfectly fine life without doing any work on yourself. Mm. However, if you're recognizing, as you said earlier before, things aren't working for me, 
or you're recognizing, hey, I keep running into the same thing over and over again. Where a lot of people start is other people must be the problem, you know, and here are the beliefs again. It's Mm -hmm. like, I keep having these bad relationships, you know, I keep picking the wrong person, Mm -hmm. you know, or like I keep running into the wrong thing, or I keep encountering the same bad luck over and over again. You know, a lot of people sort of start out externally focused. Well, are you curious to see what else might be going on there? You know, and and so the intention I think matters. And so once there's an intention there behind, well, what do I want to do with what I find out when I get quiet and I go inward and I see this stuff that's going on, um, then that's going to inform what's next, whether that's journaling, whether that's therapy, whether that's, you know, at this point, there are so many great like CBT resources online. People don't even have to really work with a clinician. There's so much accessible that people could really do a lot of work with themselves, um, you know, without the support of a therapist. Many people do like the feedback of therapy and the sort of immersive dialogue that therapy allows, you know, the back and forth that it allows for. And, and certainly that can be one, one road that can be really helpful, but there are many. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. and super helpful way to look at it. So Denise, uh, this has been a really interesting conversation about cognitive beliefs and calling them out. I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts for us that you'd like to leave us with today. That's a big question. Um, I have so many, Um, you know, to the point of this conversation, which I very much enjoyed also, I think it's to go back to fear is a natural and healthy response to being in the world. I think that as we've sort of evolved in in this sort of interesting Insta self-help world that we live in now, there's this idea, and I see it a lot in sort of spiritual circles and personal development circles that we can just abolish fear, or we can always lead with love and live in love and, and do away with fear. And there's no such thing. Fear is part of our experience. And the whole spectrum of emotion is part of our human experience. And I think the more we can sort of understand that there's going to be fear, there's going to be a desire to play it safe, there's going to be sadness, there's going to be rejection, there's going to be, we're going to be met with all of it, we're going to be met with the whole human experience. And I think if we can just start with accepting that, Mm-hmm. start with allowing for all of it, then that becomes this sort of beautiful way of leading with curiosity, you know, and leading with an openness to discover what comes up. And so then it doesn't have to be that you're working for quick results to change this or that about yourself. Then it doesn't have to be that if you do these experiments and they don't go the way you thought they would, that you have to be devastated yeah. by that. You know, then it ha- doesn't have to be that you become a completely different kind of person than you started out as, you know, then it can just be, if I accept that life is going to reveal itself to me in all sorts of different ways. And sometimes I'm going to be afraid. And sometimes I'm not going to want to try. And sometimes I'm not going to want to work on myself. And sometimes I'm not going to be able to shake this belief. If I can allow for that, then at least I can stay open. And if I stay open, then many, many, many more possibilities exist than if I stay constricted and try to play safe and stay small. And so I I think that's, that's my kind of overarching concluding thought about all of this. Yeah. I really like the way you put that. And I think like one way I can summarize what you said is that maybe fear is not the enemy, really. Fear is an opportunity for us to self-reflect and ultimately an opportunity to grow. I mean, is that kind of what you're saying to some degree? 
Exactly that. Yeah. It's a beautiful way of putting it. Great. Well, Denise, it's been a really fun and wonderful conversation with you. I really appreciate you coming on the show and speaking with me about these topics. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.